You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 241 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Just like last Sunday, we are going to do another Terence McKenna talk. And this one is about time travel. I've always loved time travel. If a movie ever deals with time travel, I'll watch it and I'll enjoy it, goddammit. Usually, anyway. And I'm not sure why I love time travel films or ideas or philosophy so much. Maybe it goes back to when I was a little kid and totally had my mind blown watching Back to the Future. Since then, time travel has always been interesting to me. And it also lends itself well to psychedelic philosophy regarding what is reality. Because if you're in a different time, you know, that's a different reality. Towards the end of the talk that I'm about to play, I inserted a short bit where Terence talks about how a baby is formed in the womb. Now this does not fit with the rest of the talk, so I just stuck it on at the end because it was too poetic to leave out. Okay, let's listen to Terence discussing time travel back in August 1991. I've edited this talk a lot, cutting out lots of unnecessary stuff. Basically, I kept the gold. At least what I think is gold. Uh, Or I've cut out things that we've already heard Terence say on this podcast in the past. Here's Terence. An elf told me that, uh, now there's a fine thing for a scientist to say, an elf told me that uh, time travel is possible, but it is constrained in ways which are not normally part of our expectation of time travel. The way in which it's constrained is, once time travel is discovered, you can travel as far into the future as you wish, but you can't travel into the past any further than the uh, moment of the invention of the first time machine. The reason for this is that before the invention of the first time machine, there were no time machines, and how can you take a time machine into a domain where there aren't any? <laughs> you see, it's just to, to preserve logical consistency. When, when cars were first invented, the main objection to them was, what are you going to do with this thing? <laughs> you know, there's nowhere to, you know, it can't go where a horse can go, so what good is it? Um, So here's a fantasy scenario, uh, which for a while I liked very much. It's that quantum physics and uh, nanotechnology and all this malarkey is uh, refined and focused toward the notion of building a time machine so that then uh, on the morning of 
December 22nd, 2012 at the World Time Institute in the Amazon. The first time journey is about to be taken and the whole world is watching on holographic television as the Lady Temponaut is strapped into the machinery that will hurl her centuries into the future. And there's a countdown and a button is pushed and off she goes. Now most people's interest would be to follow this woman wherever she's going, but let's forget her for a moment. The point has been made. She disappears. We assume she went off into the future. But what happens right there, right then? It seems to me in the very next millisecond, thousands of time machines would begin arriving from the future simply because they had driven to the end of the road. They had come back in time to witness the first journey into the future. It's as though you could take your Piper Cub and fly it to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina in 1906 to see the right flyer take off. You see? Are you all with me so far? Oh yeah, right. (laughs) Now, there's a problem with this, which some of you I'm sure are thinking, I hope anyway, uh, which is what's called the grandfather paradox, which is the old conundrum that haunts all time travel schemes, which is if time travel were possible, you could go back in time and kill your own grandfather. Well, then you wouldn't exist. Well, so then this sets up a uh, logical impossibility. Either you exist or you don't exist. And some science fiction authors have have assumed that that somehow massive influxes of synchronicity would preserve your grandfather. You know, you would approach him with your Saturday night special, but it would blow up in your hand, or it would ricochet off the St. Christopher medal he always wore, or something like that, because he cannot be killed by you, because in that case you wouldn't exist, in which case he couldn't be killed by you. And this troubled me for a long time then. What exactly would happen in this situation if a time because the the according to Hans Moravik of the Robotics Institute of Carnegie Mellon University I mean time travel is no big deal the first paragraph uh, um, of this paper the last few years have been good for time machines Kip Thorne's renowned general relativity group at Caltech invented a new quantum gravitational approach to building a time gate and an international collaboration gave a convincing rebuttal of the grandfather paradox arguments. Another respected group suggested time machines that exploit quantum mechanical time uncertainty. The technical requirements for these suggestions exceed our present capabilities, but each new approach seems less onerous than the last. There is hope yet that time travel will eventually become possible, even cheap. So I then 
saw another possibility, and this is the way we can fulfill the expectation of Christian hermeneutics, and, but not require the second coming of Christ or the intercession of God Almighty into history or all these other extreme unlikelihoods. And to understand it, we have to have recourse to... Uh, um, physical model in a very simple realm of chemistry and physics, which is the Bernoulli gas laws. Some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with these, and they're very intuitive and easy to understand. Uh, we have a we have a cylinder, and it's a vac. It contains a vacuum, and at one end of the cylinder, we have a valve. And the valve is connected to a line which is connected to a tank of some inert gas, say nitrogen. So we open the valve to let the nitrogen rush into the cylinder uh, that previously was a vacuum. Now, what happens inside that cylinder, I think, is intuitively obvious to all of us. The pressure equalizes over all points equally. In other words, you can't have 50 pounds of pressure at one end of the cylinder and 5 pounds of pressure at the other. We understand that in a gas, pressure distributes itself evenly in order to achieve equilibrium. Okay, hold that notion in your mind. Now think of our world in the late 1990s uh, as a, 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 a sphere or a, or a cylinder of that sort and think of cultures as gases at various pressures and let's assign low pressures to the bare-assed folks in the Amazon and eastern Indonesia and let's assign high pressures to the folks in Manhattan and at Caltech and Cambridge and Los Angeles and London. Well, then we can predict correctly, in fact, what is happening sociologically on this planet. What is happening is that the high-tech cultures are totally overwhelming the traditional cultures. The values of Manhattan and Los Angeles are flooding everywhere and in spite of the tiny lip service we give to shamanism and body painting the truth of the matter is Amazon cultures are not really uh, making a major contribution at this point to the evolution of high-tech global information dense electronic culture Okay, that's the second level of this Bernoulli metaphor. So now let's go back to the situation where we send the Lady Temple Knot off into the future. I'm not familiar with how they overcame the grandfather paradox, so we'll pretend that the grandfather paradox is very strong. Okay, so we send the Lady Templenot off into the future, but now with what we know about the equalization of high cultures versus low in a temporal medium, what happens from our point of view is that the rest of the history of the universe happens instantly. 
that even if it's billions of years of, uh, of human culture and downloading into machines and claiming star system after star system and so forth and so on, somehow that, the state vector of all of those event systems collapses. I call this the God Whistle Principle. It's that we can actually call God into history. We can summon the end state of human evolution to appear a millisecond after we successfully achieve the implementation of this technology of time travel in order to avoid all the paradoxes that would prevail if there was any extension to the post-time travel era beyond the moment of its inception. So uh, this uh, this is a way of in a sense, forcing the evolution of the universe. And it creates the phase transition of the eschaton and uh, is, to my mind, uh, a practical... um, It it creates the basin of attraction within the domain of our own lives. Now, is there any kind of precedent for something like this, even metaphorically in our own experience? Well, it turns out, yes, there is in a kind of bizarre anecdote which should sober us considerably as we think about these things. When the first atomic weapon was built by the Manhattan Project in the desert of New Mexico, Fermi and Oppenheimer and all these people got together the night before the test at Trinity. And Fermi had a a pad like this on which he had scrawled some equations and he had reached the conclusion in the week before that they were not sure how high the temperature would go when they triggered this device and Fermi had some back-of-the-envelope calculations which caused him to believe that the nitrogen in the atmosphere of the planet would begin to burn if they tested this thing and that they would in effect ignite the atmosphere of the planet and the whole and the fireball would spread around the entire planet and destroy everything and they spent half the night going over these things and they finally decided that the information necessary to make the decision was not available and so they said well hell <laughs> throw the switch you know at least it'll get to show those Japs and Germans that we mean business so <laughs> and then of course it, it, the test was carried out the, the nitrogen did not burn and instead we were ushered into the glorious era of um, weapons of mass destruction um, So let me see, I've got some notes here. I think I covered everything. Um, What's interesting about this is that for the first time in this article by Frank Tipler called The Omega Point as Eschaton, Tipler reaches the conclusion that there is an omega point and that it does represent the funneling together of all the what are called world lines 
And he, for purposes of mental uh, comfort, sets it far in the future. But in principle, there is no reason to do that. Uh, Twelve or thirteen years ago, the Swedish cosmologist Hans Alfven wrote a wonderful little book called Worlds and Anti-Worlds, in which he uh, made the suggestion that that the uh, entire universe is what's called a, a vacuum fluctuation. Ex nihilo, literally out of nothingness. However, there's, there's a caveat, which is this creation ex nihilo can only occur if what's called parity is conserved. Now, what this means is that um, these uh, particles which come into being out of nothingness must come into existence paired with their antiparticle. And so it comes into being, let's say, the, uh, an electron and an anti-electron, and they divide on separate trajectories, and then they reconnect and collide with each other, and parity is conserved. In other words, nothing really happened. No laws of physics were violated because they annihilated each other. Now, for a long time, um, a while, this was thought to be entirely a kind of a theoretical construct. And, but then it was noticed that um, the theoretical models of black holes, which we referred to a few days ago, seemed to imply that no radiation could leave a black hole, and yet certain kinds of black holes were observed to be giving off hard radiation in the form of X-rays. And it was realized... Uh, that what was happening was virtual uh, vacuum fluctuations were taking place in the vicinity of the black hole and because one particle went one way and one the other the black hole interfered with the conservation of parity and one of the particles was being sucked into the black hole and the other particle was flying off into the ordinary universe and being seen by astronomers as hard radiation. So the, the fact that this process goes on has now been confirmed. Well, now an interesting thing about these vacuum fluctuations is that quantum physics places no upper limit on the size of a vacuum fluctuation. What it says is that the smaller the vacuum fluctuation, the fewer particles that are involved, the more likely the vacuum fluctuation is. And obviously, from observing black holes, we can see that very small vacuum fluctuations occur quite frequently. Well, Alfven took all this and said, well then, is it not possible that the entire universe, our entire universe, is simply a very large vacuum fluctuation, a vacuum fluctuation involving something like 10 high 50 particles, and they have poured into uh, the manifold in which we find ourselves, and an, an antimatter universe, invisible to us because it's in another dimension, 
was born at the same time. And so one universe went off into a higher dimensional manifold this way, and another one went off in the other direction. And what this sets us up for is the possibility allowed by this interpretation of quantum physics that the entire universe could disappear instantly. Not gradually. You wouldn't see the stars going out, but the because this is all happening in a hyperspace of some sort which treats this manifold as a point-like entity. So what you would have is just click and all particles in the universe would disappear and the original unflawed nothingness would be restored. Actually, no. There's a further caveat to all this, which is all particles have their anti-matter, anti-particle twin, except, except the photon. The photon is this mysterious particle which is different from all other particles. It either has no anti-particle or somehow it has its own anti-particle embedded within it. So what would happen in the case of a, of a universe which was a vacuum fluctuation which encountered its ghost image and conserved parity and cancelled all particles except photons is that you would suddenly have a universe made of nothing but light. Nothing but light. And we then have to model the physics of a universe where the only kinds of particles that exist are light. Well, it's interesting that all these human traditions of transcendentalism make a big deal about light. I mean, light is the metaphor for spirit. And the supposition is that the rarefaction of matter and of the flesh releases us into a realm of light. And I am not physicist enough by a long shot to say what the behavior of a universe made of light would be, but I do know enough to say that if you or I were made of light, uh, our subjective experience of the universe would be ruled by relativistic physics and we would have the impression that we could go anywhere instantly and we would have the impression that the universe was aging around us at a tremendous rate because you see the time dilation of the general theory of relativity uh, says that as you approach the speed of light time slows down. Now, it's assumed that you can't reach the speed of light because as you approach the speed of light, your mass asymptotically increases so that to push a single atom to the speed of light would require more energy than there is in the entire universe because this particle would have become so massive that there isn't enough energy to propel it. But a photon never moves slower than the speed of light. 
it never moves faster than the speed of light either. So the photon, if you were made of photons and you went from here to Zenebel Ganubi, let's say, a star in our galaxy with a wonderful name, uh, your impression of the travel time would be zero. You wouldn't... and And so... Again, here is a way without invoking God Almighty where physics seems to lay into our hands uh, metaphors for the anticipation of, uh, of the eschaton. We all assume that there is one past and one future, but it's not clear why we assume that. I mean, think about it for a moment. We're all here gathered in this room sharing this moment but we all have different pasts. Not one of us has the past of another. And so what we have in this room is a convergence of pasts. And when this meeting is over, we will go our separate ways into a variety of futures. So the assumption that there is one past and one future is just some kind of convenient mental bookkeeping. Uh, we could, and we are tremendously under the spell of this illusion. I mean, we worry about the future all the time. Well, notice that you could just move to an island somewhere and get a brown-skinned girl, and then you wouldn't have to worry about anybody else's future because you would have made your own future. We can step out of the assumption of a universal history in which we're trapped. And I think realizing this is the beginning of a kind of liberation. Our assumptions uh, are the edges of our worlds. And this is one of our strongest assumptions, the assumptions that there is a past and a future, and our destinies are all caught up in that. But actually, you can a word that rarely passes my lips, you can deconstruct that assumption and, uh, and then you're given back a, a, a whole different way of looking at the experience of being, which is empowering. Because somehow, when we are embedded in the future, we feel we have no control whatsoever. We're like corks in a raging river. But in fact, that's a false model, I think. The real truth is, and I've said it many times, that the world is not only stranger than we suppose, it's stranger than we can suppose. And in a way, that's either permission to suppose anything you want or to just stop supposing, you know. Um, these things are models the real nowhere is it writ large that bipedal apes should be able to understand how the universe works still less likely is it written anywhere that terence mckenna should be able to understand how the universe works i think the purpose of science is to uh, advance technology which is a heresy. I don't think reality can be understood and that it's absolute hubris for science to, you know, cloak itself in the mantle of philosophy. All it's for is to make better toys or, if you're nuts, better weapons. 
and um, ultimately there's not going to be any closure in in the effort to understand and I think that the the real the thing that you take away from psychedelics finally is that all models are provisional that there is no truth we talked at one point in here about Wittgenstein's phrase true enough true enough true enough to get you to the gas station true enough to get your taxes paid but uh, there'll there'll be no uh, there'll be no closure on this stuff we have to live in the light of the mystery but I think we also said in here you know it's the death of conversation if we glorify the mystery too much because then you know I'll be just like everybody else here and I'll announce that we're now going to have a meditation which I've never done to you I want to point out (laughs) (laughs) we have to live in the light of the mystery we have to live in the light of the mystery we begin as very fish-like creatures in the womb and then out of what are essentially little paddle mitts the human hand appears and I think most people think that the the tissue retracts tightly and uh, and that the human being emerges but if you've seen fetal stages in bottles in medical schools what's actually going on is that cells die off a massive amount of dying goes on in the womb in order that the human form may emerge out of the fetal form the webbing between the fingers doesn't retract those cells die and are released into the amniotic fluid the the growth of the fetus involves the death of millions and millions and millions of cells so we are born we are you could almost say sculpted into life by the hand of death we are you could almost say sculpted into life by the hand of death We have to live in the light of the mystery. Well, I want to say, I think you ask excellent questions. I'm I'm really, um, you know, the questions that you have are, are just excellent. <laughs> the Natural Born Alchemist podcast with your host, Alex, the man with the excellent questions. If you want to support Alex, that's me, then please become a patron. Show your support. Go to patreon.com forward slash natural born alchemist. If you do, all of your wildest dreams will come true. This talk was lifted from the psychedelicsalon.com. Go check it out. 
Here is a kind of time travel song from the future called 2102, as in the year 2102. From the album Mayatastic by Nameless Archive. Go to namelessarchive.com if you like what you hear and you want to hear more. Next week is going to be the fourth and final episode of my little mini-series recorded at the World Ayahuasca Conference. This last episode is the best one in my opinion and features the great author and anthropologist Jeremy Narby. Freedom is in the mind.